0: Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years' experience leading high tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. There is a significant subgenre of management literature that takes its lead from the ancient classics of philosophy, and then recast them anew for modern times. As just one example, there's the Tao of Leadership that adapts Lao Tzu's concepts from ancient China. There are the many variants modernizing Sun Tzu's The Art of War, including even one of our own past podcast guests, Ray Ye, who built on it for his brilliant book, The Art of Business. There's even one entitled Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun, of all things. The key to all of them is to look into a well-respected past text or leadership practice and to discern anew how the words from these simpler times and visions might help ground us and inform us in our current, sometimes way too complex world. For this episode of Stranova, we have the rare opportunity to bring to you something which has grown from a similar root, but I would very much guess that few of you, if any, have had the chance to hear of it. The concept is Tipu Ake Kite Ora, a rediscovered leadership model which derives from practices the legendary Maori people, the indigenous peoples of New Zealand, have developed over many centuries. The name Tipuake Kite Ora refers to the concept of growing from within ever upwards towards well-being, and as a leadership and strategic model teaches an organic view of the organizational and business world encompassing the benefits of the grounding chaos that allows ideas to germinate the interdependent nature of the many species that exist within an ecosystem, and the many energies that flow within and through an ecosystem. Since the Maori themselves share their ideas through the power of story, it is very appropriate, I think, that we have the opportunity to share these ideas with you as an oral telling of centuries-old wisdom through one of its modern interpreters, Peter Goldsbury, coordinator of the Tipuake team and managing director of Strategic Expertise Limited. We spoke with him at his home in the Auckland, New Zealand area. Well, Peter, thanks for joining us this week on Stranova.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for you giving us the opportunity, Brad. It's a wonderful day here in New Zealand, and uh, then you might hear the birds chirping outside, so hopefully we'll have a bit of fun and share a few ideas.
0: Well, thanks a lot. In my introduction, I did talk a little bit about some of the concepts that you are engaged with and yet, although our audience for this podcast is indeed an international one and they have that as a little bit of a background, the concept of Tipuake is, is likely a new one for just about everyone hearing this. So, what exactly is Tipuake, if I'm pronouncing it right, and where did it come from?
1: Well, Tipuake, we brand it as a leadership model. And it's a leadership model which is basically focusing on growth and growth in the widest possible sense. The name Tipuake. Tipuake Kite order is a full name, that's a Maori name. Tipuake means growing from within, ever upwards and onwards. And Kite Ora means towards a place of well-being. So it's kind of, it's not just the process of growing, but the process of describing the destination you're actually aiming for as well.
0: And so when you're talking about a project or a business, Part of what I understand from some of the documents going forward is that you're looking at a broader concept of having the company and maybe its entire business world or perhaps the project and all the other projects around it move toward a direction of well-being as being a key driver in, in how it all functions. Is that roughly correct?
1: Yeah, the TikWaki is really a model which we picked up as we talk later about a school in a small community in a rainforest which had a different way of thinking. And when we got there, we found that their focus was really a focus on outcomes. What's going to be left at the, t- at the end of what you're doing? It's, it's quite a long-term sort of concept. So that, that Maori word, order, is a very, very powerful one. It's much, much more than well-being. It's about the past, the future, and the present.
0: You also talked about, when we, we can briefly discussed this before, about the idea of behavioral and not really process. It's cyclical and not linear, collaborative, not individual. Could you talk maybe a little bit more about what some of the ideas and details in the process are?
1: The metaphor of the is in fact a tree growing in the diversity and interconnectedness of a, of a rainforest. We're starting at the bottom, if you like, is the the soil, that place where all the innovation and the ideas, tons of energy, but nothing much is happening. And then we see the the seed of that tree or that idea or that project or whatever being sort of centered around this idea of leadership, something with the courage to actually start growing in a difficult environment, you might say. And when that happens, the courage kind of takes us to the next stage, the, the kind of the roots of the tree, the stuff that you must get in place underground in order to support growth above the ground. That then moves up to the, to thinking about the trunk, and the trunk is sort of representing the processes. That's the space that we spend most of our time in organisations thinking about, how we organise, how we measure ourselves and that kind of thing. As well as having the seed and the roots under the ground, also some levels above the process. They're talking about the leaves. We're going out and sensing what's going on around you, finding out the triggers from outside, collecting in the sunlight and the energy from other sources. And when that happens, take it to the level which we sort of relate to being the flowers, which is really the wisdom that's actually picked up by this group and the intellectual capital, if you like, of the organization, or in this case, the tree. And and then finally, the fruit, well-being, why we actually see doing things, what we're going to get out of it. So let's just give a little sort of idea of that metaphor, if you like, of the tree growing and within that environment, there are a couple of other things which are really quite important. That's thinking about the pests, the things that actually stop the growth of the tree, identifying, we might call them our normal world risks, and it's about risk management, learning to, to react to, to the risks around us. Uh, but more importantly, uh, probably thinking about the birds in the forest, the entrepreneurs, the people, the people that run around and gather in the new ideas and, and go down and plant new seeds for new growth and, and generating diversity. And then finally, one other part of the model is, is a thing which we call a poison. And if pests stop growth, and we have to control them, poisons stop the process of germination. They stop new things happening. And I guess probably all of us have been in organizations where those poisons are there, their apathy, they're, oh, well, we've, we've done that before and it hasn't worked. I'm not prepared to have a go at trying some new things, that kind of kind of thing.
0: Well, one thing that I very much admire about the model is that it points to the more organic nature of basically any leadership or business model that we're talking about something where you do have a complete ecosystem of sorts that is existing. And if you think of it that way as something where every element of that ecosystem, every way that it manifests can help it grow, then it helps you understand that perhaps a little bit better. Than if you follow the more traditional linear strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats type models that we typically talk about when we're talking about business, and certainly in the U.S. and Western Europe. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of contrasts with some of these leadership models, with maybe that as well as what you said as a introductory framework. You know, in the more common leadership and strategic models that we see, particularly in the U.S., you know, we do talk about levels of competency and competitiveness Where maybe at the lowest end of that levels of competency you may have a product line that is simply good enough to even be in the business world and at the highest end of the levels of competency you're actually helping set the agenda for what's going on we also talk about living systems approaches to business planning and all as well I'm curious about where you see the overlaps are between what Tipuake is and where you feel there really are significant differences in the mindset or the, the actual way of thinking about the model.
1: Yeah, well, I think probably the main thing is when we're looking at this Tipuake, it comes out of an indigenous Maori kind of tradition and that community that inspired it. And because we take a Western viewpoint, which is basically hooked up with processes, measurement, knowledge management, trying to gather and stuff, trying to put it into our computers and the rest of it. Hipparaki takes quite a different approach. It's much more of an indigenous one, which is kind of about the attrition are sensing the environment and learning from nature and, and transmitting information much more in stories rather than in processes and flowcharts and things like that. So that that's sort of the basic kind of mindset comes from, I guess. When we look at some of the the things that you're talking about, that sort of levels of competence in organisations, again, that's a lot of our focus. I think is about putting people in a ladder and seeing where they sit in the ladder. Largely, probably related to market position and ability to dominate and uh, and control the marketplace. And I guess maybe in that environment, maybe there's a danger that we actually squash the diversity and innovation, which comes kind of a long way further down, almost below the ground, if you like. The Tikalaki model is definitely not a capability model type process where people look and say, which stage am I at? It's actually a model which requires you to be operating at all the levels of it simultaneously. So it's, it's about chaos. It's about being able to go downwards in order to grow further upwards and to go down and plant new seeds, new ideas, and You bring new innovation into the organisation. And that's sort of a renewal type process.
0: It does one other thing that is, I think, significant, and it's come up several times in the interview sessions that we've had here on Stranova, and that has to do with a more holistic approach to looking at things versus the elemental approach, which, real bluntly, it's part of the way the Western thinking, you know, works. Um, I, and maybe as an analogy here, I was fascinated with reading a most recent translation of some of Confucius's Analects. Where there was a statement that talking about the 10,000 things, you know, that heaven is made of. The word heaven, at least in the translation in Chinese, typically is translated as this place where there are 10,000 things. And the comment from the translators was that they believed that that was translated wrong for many, many years and that in fact what we have is a world with 10,000 processes instead. And it immediately opens up the concept of being more holistic and looking at this. It's even beyond the traditional Western ideas of systems thinking. It's, it's far more of interactions, interplay. You have to see it all at the same time rather than looking at things as individual elements that can be separated. It sounds like that fits very much what the model's about.
1: Yeah, I actually just found a little note in my diary that I picked up from a person down at Te just a few months back. And he said, Tipu ora. He said That means growing towards an understanding of the world of outcomes. It's beyond the physical, beyond the spiritual, beyond even our imagination. So maybe that sort of hooks a little bit into that kind of heaven place. And that word order probably is somewhat analogous to that hidden position if you like the place you'd like to be if you had the choice but you never quite know what it is because the closer you get to it the more it changes
0: you know in your paper that you presented on this topic at the two thousand and four pmI Global Congress in Anaheim, California, you introduced the concept of Tipuake which, which comes across as one of those amazing stories that has never to my knowledge come up in this kind of context in, in management and leadership and the stories that you and other management lecturers from the the Auckland University of Technology discovered a tiny school in a rainforest that had through using the Tipuaki principles, and self-transformed itself in a few short years from an educational disaster to the top of its class, in your words. What exactly happened there in that little school, and how did you happen to take that idea forward to begin to spread the lessons that you've learned there?
1: I'll leave you to talk to Chris and some of the others from the school to to give you some stories there. But but certainly you'll, you'll hear from them about courage to to basically face the issues they're in and have a go at things that everybody else thought was pretty much impossible. How could people without lawyers, without accountants run a school effectively. They'll also talk to you a lot about vision, driving all their decisions based on the outcomes that they wanted for their children. And certainly they'll also, I'm sure, talk to you about values. You know, what are the gifts that their ancestors in the past give us to help move forward? From my point of view, I was just really privileged in the fact that I was actually born and bred in this little community many years ago before I went off to university and did many more kind of left brain type thinking and we got went back with a group and discovered that they'd done something pretty important and as a group we then decided there may be something there that could be shared and, and out of that kind of grew the, the model of Tikurake because they had no model like this. They said to us, we just did things the best way we knew how.
0: And I will talk to your colleagues and probably include that in the second half of this interview. I'd like to hit on a couple other things that you've talked about. One of the things that you've mentioned in the process of talking about Tipu you mentioned a key phrase that I thought was very interesting and that resonates very much with my own way of thinking. That phrase is that, Conventional planning typically looks at the future from the perspective of the present, and tipuake suggests that you look at the present from the perspective of the future. Could you say more about that and maybe a bit on how our listeners might put this into practice in their own work?
1: The important thing we found with tipuake, and in fact like it's a key to order part of tipuake, is that focus on that place order. And so what we try and do is describe that plane in some kind of rich, emotionally charge words, if you like, and also long-term type words, which actually allow people to hook into the journey of actually moving towards it. And having done that, we then look at the level of outcomes. If we ever got to near that place, or what would need to be in place there? And that then just thinking about what we're trying to build, looking then at indicators, how could we actually know that we're moving towards it? And these indicators are more than just measurements. They're... All sorts of triggers used to recognise our progress, if you like, and then finally, having looked at that, what we'll often find is we'll be able to look and say, "Now, what projects could we do? What things could we start moving on now to actually move us towards it?" And the interesting thing about this is it takes us right away from our conventional project-type thinking, which says, what, "What output do I want to deliver, and what's the process I'm going to use to do it?" Instead, what it does, it, it goes back to the going back to the metaphor of the of the rainforest, it says, let's plant as many seeds as possible and kind of encourage the growth of those that take us in that kind of direction. So rather than just having a, a single, focused, linear project mentality, what we find is, is all of a sudden people suggest all sorts of things that, yeah, we could be doing this. And Our project list becomes a mile long, and we let the world prioritize it, look for opportunities to to push those projects forward, that moves us much more into that kind of program thinking where we're saying uh, there's a whole lot of things we can do, a whole lot of partners can be involved, a lot of people can get some win-win benefits out of participating in this, and, and we're looking for to uh, moving things forward, I guess, in a broader sense.
0: It actually raised as a specific issue something that just occurred to me in this context, which is that when we talk about, say, strategy and strategic planning in most of the Western world, I guess it's say maybe even U.S.-centric, we may talk about a couple of parallel paths that we're going to explore, but most companies, maybe with the exception of innovation leaders like 3M and others, don't consciously plant many seeds. They tend to take the old J.P. Morgan line from the turn of the last century that was If you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, you'd better watch that basket. We tend to focus on one or two things as opposed to really planting multiple seeds and looking for watching how they grow and even, as you point out, learning from the metaphorical nature and natural world that's around for that business and seeing what of those various seeds is actually going to prosper.
1: One of the important things we could kind of found and recognize in Teppuraki, I guess, is that really innovation really occurs in that kind of place of chaos. If uh, things are going smooth, innovation doesn't occur. And very often our projects are about, our organisations are about putting processes together to make things run smoothly. And so we're by and large very, very unhappy and uncomfortable about moving into that kind of space of chaos where there's a whole pile of energy and there's a whole lot of potential seeds that can grow. It's getting down to that sort of chaos theory, that butterfly effect. Little things can make fantastically big changes in both directions as well.
0: It's a good message. Often it's talked about that in real ecosystems, the natural world, that some of the most Rapid rate of innovation and change is actually at the edges of ecosystems rather than in the center, which is typically more stable and mature. So it's at those edges where the chaos is that you actually have a lot of things happening. The same thing's true in the business world, the project world, and everything else. We just aren't real comfortable there.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and I would say also, sort of just following on that chaos complexity type thinking, in Tepewake, we kind of see that kind of vision of order as being a bit of a strange attractor that kind of out of that chaos just keep people kind of facing in the right direction
0: with that last thought in mind here i'd like to see if you could give us some examples of where the process has been put into practice you know in schools government or business I'm curious about where this might have been put into practice and even more so how did you introduce those groups to this new concept, because I'm guessing there might be a nature of skepticism on their parts in looking at something which seems so, at least initially, foreign to their world and their ways of thinking.
1: Yeah, that's certainly the case. And many people look at it and say, well, that's a pretty simplistic kind of model. But what we kind of found, because it focuses on behaviors more so than processes, it's actually quite applicable to any group of people that's actually trying to make something happen. And so it applies to the growing innovation, new products, strengthening communities, governments, all sorts of areas where people have to get together to make some, some new things happen. And we've also found that the focus on growth rather than change is really important. It's a much more kind of positive driver for really, really positive kind of actions around, around the organization. From my point of view, and I run project management workshops for, for organizations and incorporated a lot of tip kind of thinking within that sort of context of moving outside just a straight project process type area into that whole behaviour, teamwork, leadership kind of space as well. And what we've been doing is working with you know, lots of organisations both as in-house programs and, and also as public courses. But it's kind of a way of kind of infusing some of this process in organisations rather than saying let's go and talk to the CEO and re- orientate our project, our organization around a different way of thinking. Originally when we were presenting it, I would take a quite a strong sort of storytelling kind of approach and just tell the stories of the school and things like that. And again, people found that quite difficult because, you know, we're not a school, we're a, a multi-million dollar business and what can they tell us about running our business? Since then, basically what I've been trying to do is to take the group and say, just imagine what would happen if you could move above that process level thinking, get a group which is working up in that collective sensing and collective wisdom, what kind of things could you do as an organisation? And in the workshops, try and take people up there so they actually experience that place where a whole lot of heads are are hooked together. And their diversity is being applied and they find they know a lot more about the environment that they're working in than they ever imagined they would. And out of that, obviously, give gives them an experience which allows them then to say, "Well, oh, yeah, that was good. Can I actually start doing that back in my workplace and getting other people involved around the idea? So we've been applying it in quite a lot of small organisations which are able to pick it up and kind of use it as part of their growth mechanism. We had a large primary producer which looked at it as a way of looking at all the parties across their supply chain, some high-tech companies have been involved, quite a few health providers because they hook in very nicely to that whole concept of order, what are we all here for? And finally, more recently, a lot of government agencies where, I'm not sure about in the States, but government generally has been split up into little boxes and they're finding most of the really successful initiatives that are going on are now ones which are cross-agency ones and requiring much more collaboration across agencies. and certainly there's been quite a lot of interest in that sort of space. So that gives you a bit of an idea here.
0: It does. This sort of working together, even in government in the states, is definitely coming up more and more as people are realizing that it's not even just about efficiencies. It's about how we can build on each other and, and how we can learn from each other and share information and together make the end result a a far more productive and useful place. I think that is coming to pass. As we get here to the close, remind our listeners that I will have a number of links to various places where you can learn more about Tipuake and the work that Peter has talked about here, as well as I'm going to be offering a space on our blog at blog.stranova.com for people to perhaps join in a written dialogue going back and forth. But Peter, if our listeners wanted to reach you or to learn more about Tipuake, how might they be able to do that to perhaps continue the dialogue you've already initiated and or learn more details directly?
2: Tipuake,
1: we haven't mentioned it, is basically a a model which has been produced purely by a group of volunteers and that volunteer group is now sort of spreading light around the world and we count you and Brad very strongly as part of that process now. And, and the whole thing is really centered around the website and the school philosophy of saying philosophy to have our kids move into the information age is one that allows them to kind of share their knowledge, give it away to others so that they can grow as well. So that's been the philosophy and, and the website nz is the place where all that information is held.
0: Again, there's a link to that on our website as well, but encourage for those of you that only hear it in the audio version, please do take a look and learn a bit more about that. And, Peter, I wanted to thank you for joining us this week on Stranova.
1: Yeah, well, it's been a wonderful chance to talk to you, and thanks very much, and best wishes to all of the people around the world that maybe just pick up something here, and, and even if it just challenges you to think it just a little bit differently about some things, have a go, and see where it leads
0: you At Peter Goldsbury's urging, we called Chris Eccatone, the chairman of the school board of the T. FITE School, where a lot of this initial investigation of Tipuakeh work was uncovered by Peter Goldsbury and his team, to talk to Chris a little bit about what his experiences were working with that team and what happened with their own implementation of the Tepuake principles. Chris, thanks for joining us on Stranova. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when Peter and his team arrived at your school? What happened initially, and how did that proceed from that point?
2: Peter had observed the way that we did things at the school, which wasn't normal with normal state schools. Really what we did was, in terms of the decision-making, we focused more on outcomes. By doing that, it made decision-making a lot easier in terms of achieving what we were wanting to achieve. Whereas in the past you would get distracted by things like the system saying that you shouldn't be doing certain things, financial costs would turn you off, things like that.
0: So I definitely understand the outcomes oriented view of things. And it also appears that if you look at the entire Tipuake Kite Ora concept of looking at this as a complete living system that you're engaged in, I would imagine that that helped tremendously in understanding what the implications were for even a small school looking at a broader and more thorough type of educational opportunity because of its long-term implications for the community.
2: And I suppose an example would be the school bus. Because of the size of our school, we didn't qualify for any entitlement to buy school transport, but we felt that it was a method of addressing a lot of barriers we had towards learning. Some examples of that would be because of our remoteness, it would cost us a lot of money to take our children out to basic places like museums, direct with um, other children near a school being 40, 50 k's away, sports activity, many of those kind of things. We didn't qualify purely because of our numbers, but we thought if we could base our argument around education outcomes, then that's how we would do it. As it's turned out, the Ministry of Education has conceded based on the information that we have been able to submit in terms of outcomes and the benefits to the children. Another big push for us was technology. We don't have broadband internet services at that time, but we felt that it was crucial to our needs in terms of um, providing good education options for our children, so we had to piggyback on local and private companies to assist us in installing basic resources that city schools have. Being a small school in a remote area it costs you a lot of money just to go from A to B and the system didn't allow for that. And so we had to come up with another way of getting around that. So we kind of focus more on the benefits. What are we trying to do? What are the outcomes we're seeking? And do they stand up to the criteria set by the system? And so whenever something arose, we would base it around those kind of principles and say, okay, yep, there are benefits to the children, and there are education benefits. They do have credibility. And then once you've identified all of that, then we
0: just go ahead and do it. Well, Chris, thanks for filling us in on that and for joining us this week on Stranova. You're welcome. As regular listeners know, we at Stranova consider that one of the keys to truly understanding where new business opportunities may lie is to have as full as possible an understanding of the full business ecosystem they reside within. If we've done it well, that understanding includes a deep knowing of the core essence of each participant in the ecosystem, their capacity for transformation, and the nature of the interconnections and processes that join each other in the intertwined whole. There is then the question of what the guiding principles should be for digging deeper into that understanding and for determining which path is best for evolving change within the particular business universe we are concerned with. For me, the concepts Peter Goldsberry's team is bringing to us offer both a strong grounding metaphor as well as a brilliant distant star to direct our investigations and strategic journeys in all our organizational, leadership, and innovative efforts. And as we close this episode of Stranova, I also want to recall, even beyond the issues of our own more narrowly focused business vision, that embedded within the full Tipuake Kite Ora name is Ora, which calls up the holistic Maori concept of well-being and was described in one of Peter Goldsbury's papers as a high state of balance with the earth and all its richness that accounts for the past, present, and future. Not a bad thought to carry with all of us for today in everything we are setting out to accomplish and causing to emerge in the world, isn't it? Please do let us know what you think of this episode, and please do consider linking into our blog to contribute to the public conversation about it at blog.stranova.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com. And be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408-849-4394 or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson, thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.